<laughs> so, uh, okay, Passover is one of seven annual feasts. We like to call these the Feast of Israel, and I find that unfortunate. Because as soon as we do that, you who are non-Jewish believers, and note the way I say that, non-Jewish believer, there is no such thing as a Gentile Christian. You know what the word Gentile means? Pagan. How do we ever come up with a pagan Christian? Maybe that's what's wrong with a lot of our churches. I'm not sure. But uh, Jewish believer, non-Jewish believer, it's really more to the point. And you're sitting here thinking, come on, now we're not Jewish. What could this possibly have to do with us? And the fact of the matter is, in Leviticus 23, where God establishes these seven annual feasts, in verse 2 of that chapter, God himself does not refer to these as the Feast of Israel, but the Feast of the Lord. If you're saved tonight, that's your Lord. The same Lord that owns you owns these feasts. So why wouldn't it be important for you to understand these feasts and how they do pertain to your walk before this Jewish Messiah, Yeshu, Jesus? Now, there are seven of them. They required three trips a year to the temple up until 70 AD. Since then, to the synagogues around the world. Now that was only required of the men and of the boys, not the ladies, not their daughters. First trip came in the spring of the year, covered an eight-day period. The first three feasts, which is Passover, followed immediately by unleavened bread, culminating with the Feast of First Fruits. Now First Fruits is the feast upon which Jesus rose from the dead, not Easter. We don't celebrate Easter. You're thinking, well, you should have been around here a few months ago. I promise whatever it is you were doing, Easter is not what you were celebrating, and I'll clear that up in a little bit. Second trip comes 50 days later. That's the Feast of Pentecost. The third and the final trip comes in the fall of the year. Uh, it will really begin next month. It covers a 22-day period. The last three of these seven feasts, we call these the High Holy Days, Trumpets, Atonement, Tabernacles. Now, every one of these seven annual feasts very clearly foreshadows and are fulfilled by Jesus himself. None more thoroughly than Passover. From this table tonight, I'm going to show you Jesus in every possible way you could hope to see him. From his virgin birth, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his second coming, millennial kingdom reign. I will show you where Jesus lifts from this table, gave us what we know to be the Lord's Supper. Now of all these seven annual feasts, my people consider Passover to be their crown jewel. I like that. They can't tell you why they esteem this feast so highly. But I like the fact that the feast which most thoroughly depicts Jesus just happens to be our crown jewel. Now, there are a lot of reasons why you need to understand this feast, not the least of which, friend, listen, our Savior is a Jew. Born the line of the tribe of Judah to be seated on David's throne to rule and reign forever. God's holy word is a Jewish book. It's written by Jews, to Jews, about a Jew. Now, I always like to throw this one out there, and you may think there's some heresy in this one. Nice thing about it is you can't prove me wrong. Not on this side of heaven anyway. Because if I am wrong, we won't know until we get there, and then guess what? Yeah, thank you. And you're going to have to forgive me. None of these Baptist grudges in heaven, folks. It's just not going to happen. You remember Matthew 26, Jesus is in that upper room. He has just partaken of that broken loaf of matzah, that third cup of wine. He took these elements, put them down, and then declared, I'll not eat of this bread nor drink of this cup again until I take it with you anew when I come into my Father's kingdom. It could very well be that what Jesus was alluding to was that that marriage supper of the Lamb, <laughs> but I hope you're praying that'll be soon, 
that very well could be this feast. I can't think of a feast more fitting to observe in that day than the one which most thoroughly depicted what place is at that table in the first place. So again, if I'm wrong, we won't know till we get there. I'm just counting on you to forgive me. So as we approach the table, sundown, the 14th of the month of Nisan, according to Leviticus 23, Exodus 12, and of course the Jewish calendar, you need to appreciate the fact that up until 70 AD, there really was only one place on all the earth you could legitimately observe this feast. That would have been the temple in Jerusalem. But we no longer have the temple. It was destroyed in 70 AD by Titus of Rome, along with the city of Jerusalem. The city's been rebuilt, but not the temple. Now, personally, I believe God himself orchestrated those events that brought about the destruction of the temple, and I believe that for this reason. If the temple were standing still today, my people would continue to perform those sacrifices that Hebrews tells us could never take away sin. And the focus never would have shifted from the blood of goats and bulls and lambs to this one man, who after offering himself one time for many, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ever to make intercession for you and for me. So personally, I believe God himself orchestrated those events that brought about the destruction of the temple, that put an end to the sacrificial system, which meant its fulfillment in Jesus Christ when he went to the cross of Calvary. Now that being as it is, we now observe this feast in the homes of Jewish families the world over. So we have to, um, first of all, we have to prepare this house in a very special fashion in order to receive this holy and righteous feast. Um, what we're going to do is go through a little ritual called purging out the leaven. Leaven in scripture, and all but one instance that I can think of, always represents sin. And you know, it doesn't take a lot of sin to make us a sinner. A little leaven. Leaven at the whole lump, the Bible tells us. Fact is, all we need is to be born of Adam's seed, and we're sinners. And need of one to come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and the Bible is filled with this. In sin was I conceived, in sin my mother brought me forth. All we like sheep have gone astray. There is none righteous, no, not one. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I think it reaches its pinnacle when we read in Romans 5 and verse 12 that because Adam sinned, death came and death passed to all men because all have sinned. So we're all in the same boat. We're all desperately in need of one to come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves and provide that atoning work of grace. So what we're going to do now is purge out that old leaven. Everybody in the family gets involved in this. We're going to clean this house within an inch of its life, like it never gets clean any other time of the year. Remember, we're in the spring of the year. Any of this sound familiar, ladies? Yeah, I, had, I was in one church, somebody yelled out, wrong generation. <laughs> But that little spring cleaning torture you've been inflicting on your household all these years, where do you suppose that came from? If not for preparing the house to receive this holy and righteous feast, and that being in the spring of the year. Well, once we purge the house, my father would play a little game with us kids. He'd take some crumbs of bread, some crumbs of cake, anything that had leaven in it, hide it in places where the kids would be likely to find it. He'd put it under a seat cushion, under a doormat, on a bookshelf. My father then would give each of us kids a candle. He'd light that candle for us, send us out throughout the house to search for the leaven. Now, when we found the leaven, we left it alone. We'd call on our father, who would come with a wooden spoon and a white feather, and he would sweep that leaven into that wooden spoon and then cast that into the fire, and it would be burned away. If there's no fire in the house, 
he cast it from the house. Now the house is deemed to be free from leaven and able to receive this holy and righteous feast. But this reminds me of something very important. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, every last one of us who knows Jesus as our personal Savior will one day stand before him and give an account. That passage tells us the sum total of our life will be cast in that fire. The things which we did that brought honor and glory to our Savior are characterized as gold, silver, precious stone. They'll be added as jewels to our crowns. Don't you get too attached to those crowns. We'll be casting those at Jesus' feet. Somebody asked me, so why would God have me work for rewards I don't even get to keep? Well, I think Paul covers that when he tells us that no flesh should glory in his presence. Unfortunately, while we're going to be pretty enamored watching these things, we're going to see some other things of our life cast in that fire at the same time. These are the things which we did that did not bring glory to our Savior. They're characterized as wood, hay, and stubble. They'll be burned away, lost for all of eternity, and there'll be no reward for these. Now, usually, when I get to this point, people's minds run to the sinful, wicked things we still may do once we've been saved. So what about that soul that you recently witnessed to? And they got saved. But you spent so much time glorifying yourself that there was no glory for Jesus. See, he's not going to share our spotlight, folks. And in that very scenario, Jesus warns us, don't think you have a reward in heaven. You have it on earth. And we've squandered it. I just want to provoke our thinking a little bit. Saddest part of this whole passage, he goes on to tell us that there are those in that day that it's all wood, hay, and stubble. They will not have done one single thing since being saved that brought honor and glory to the Savior, that gave us all to snatch them out of the fires of a burning hell, set their feet on streets of purest gold, make them citizens of heaven, children of the living God for all of eternity, not one single thing. I mean, you think gratitude just forced you to do something. Obviously, there are those that will escape this. Now, they'll still be saved. Passage tells us, yet so is by fire. They will have just escaped hell, and that's all. And I find this to be a horrible prospect and one we desperately need to guard against in our walk before the Lord in this life on this earth. Well, once we've done this and we've deemed the house to be free from leaven, able to receive this holy and righteous feast, sundown, 14th of the month of Nisan, we take our place around the table. Now, you need to understand this table. Everything on this table is unique to Pesach. Nothing will be used at any other time of the year. We have white table covers. White represents righteousness, holiness, purity, which is what the feast depicts. We have white candles, which will bring light to our feast, which otherwise would be in darkness. The number of these fluctuate according to how many you have at your table. Um, this table is set up for two, so I have two candlesticks. The home I grew up in with five children and my parents, there'd be seven. We didn't want the fire marshal out here tonight, so we just put two on every table, okay? Um, but you see how that works. There's a Seder plate in the middle of the table. It has symbolic foods. And lucky you, you're going to get to sample all of that stuff. Um, there's a cup of wine at every place at the table. There are four cups of wine involved at Passover. I'll explain these as we go along. There's a platter of matzah. Matzah is unleavened bread. It's flat because it has no leaven. Striped from the cooking grid, pierced with holes. These can't be chipped or broken. They have to be perfect in every way. These are used during the ceremony of the bread as is the matzotash, which is a linen envelope that has three compartments. Yours on your table is already set up in a makeshift 
matzotash in the folds of a napkin, and that's perfectly fine for our purposes tonight. There'd be a place setting at every place at the table. Very large festive meal observed at Passover. But the dishes are very important. I mean, you remember we were told not only to sacrifice to the lamb and apply the blood, but we were to roast it and eat it in its entirety that night and leave nothing till morning. So very large festive meal. But again, the dishes are very important. The proper kosher housewife ladies doesn't keep just one set of dinnerware in her home for everyday use, maybe a second set for company. She must maintain in her home at all times at least four complete sets of dinnerware. You see, she can never put meat on a dish she'd ever put a dairy product on. Can't wash them together in the same water, not even the same sink. Ever wonder why your kitchen sink is really two sinks? And it's not because the garbage disposal is on one side? One sink for meat dishes, the other sink for dairy dishes. Um, so you need two complete sets of dinnerware for everyday use. One set dedicated meat, the other one dairy. If you have a set of china, you'll have two. One for meat, one for dairy. Then you need two more complete sets of dinnerware reserved solely for your Passover table, dedicated after the same fashion. Now, if these dishes are used at any other time of the year, even by accident, you know, Junior comes in starving to death as he always is, right? Gets in the cupboard, pulls out some dishes, gets some food out of the refrigerator. He's sitting at the kitchen table enjoying himself. Mom comes in, discovers Junior got into her Passover dishes. Well, after she's recovered, she'll destroy these, the entire set, and go out and purchase another set to replace them. See, they've been defiled now. They're not fit for use under any circumstance. I just show you this so you can appreciate how strongly these things are adhered to. Now, there's an extra place setting at my table. Doesn't matter how many people you have at your table, this table is set up for two, two candlesticks, but there's a third place setting. So it doesn't matter how many you have at your table, you always set an extra place. There'd be a chair here with a cushion, a place setting, a cup of wine. This is reserved solely for Eliehu the prophet, who my people believe will come on Passover and Passover night alone. And they expect him to come to every Jewish household the world over on this one night and announced to every Jewish family, Messiah has come. So, he's on a long, difficult journey this night. Now he's in our home. Proper customs of hospitality demand that we take care of him. So we have a chair here with a cushion so he can relax, a place setting so he can be nourished, a cup so he can be refreshed. And oh, by the way, ever wonder where this notion of setting out cookies and milk for Santa ever came from? I mean, who else is said to be schlepping the entire world one night a year, popping in on everybody's home, invited or not, and just might need a little nosh, a little snack? We had it first, okay? So, but year after year after year, no one ever sits in this seat, eats from this plate, drinks from this cup. Friend, listen, this prophet's already come. This announcement has already been made. Shouldn't be too great a shock to your system tonight. For me to remind you, Jesus, in fact, was not born December 25th. I said that one church, all the heads in unison popped to the pastor. Mouths fell open, eyes bulged out. I said, brother, what did I do? We went out to dinner afterwards. I said, okay, what did I say? He said, well, I just finished a series of messages proving he had. Well, he's still my friend. Church still supports us. And you know the way I look at it, long as that check keeps rolling in, he can be as wrong as he wants to be. But the fact is, 
the gospel record gives us some time locators so we can understand some things. Because of Zacharias being a Levitical priest in the temple, burning the incense, lighting the lamps, there is such a rigid course and order to this. He probably waited his entire lifetime for his opportunity to fill this role. And it was at that moment the angel came to him and declared to him that his wife Elizabeth had conceived and would bear him a son who would be John the Baptist. Because of all of this, we can pretty well pinpoint when this took place. So you start dating forward from that moment, you get to the birth of John the Baptist in the spring of the year at the time of the Passover. Jesus, who humanly speaking, was six months younger than John, would then have been born in the fall of the year. Now, no Jewish man ever began his public ministry until his 30th birthday. So watch John the Baptist at his 30th birthday in the spring of the year at the time of the Passover. At the only time of the year my people ever expect this announcement to have been made, and there he is in the spirit of Elijah declaring Messiah had come. And still my people have an awful time grasping this truth. And this in a nutshell is the urgency of our ministry to get this message to my people the world over that what they're begging God for year after year after year in fact is already fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah and in fact declared Messiah had come at the only time of the year my people were expecting that to happen. So keep us in your prayers as we continue to pursue our ministry among my people. As Father comes to the table, he can wear one of two garments. I'll show them both to you. The first, while it's acceptable, is not the desired garment for Passover. This is the talus, the prayer shawl. We were taught in Scripture that we were to sew the fringes upon the borders of the garment. This is the garment, then, that was designed for that purpose. The fringes represent God's promises to my people. No Orthodox Jewish man will ever be without this garment in some form or fashion. This is his ability to pray. You may see Jewish men not wearing the entire talus, but you'll see the fringes or the tzitzes exposed at their waistband. They're wearing another form of this under their shirt, under their vest, exposing the tzitzes. Now they can pray. I, sometimes, not all that often, but I've seen Jewish men these days just tying the sits us to their belt loops and that seems to be sufficient but you know I see Jesus wearing this garment very clearly in the word of God do you remember when Jesus was walking through the city streets and the crowds enthronged him and a woman showed up on this particular day in a crisis situation in her life desperately needing to approach Jesus but couldn't get close enough to him because there were too many people so what did she do she came up from behind him she reached out and she did what touched the hem of his garment Look what she reached for in her crisis, those promises of God. Do you remember when Jesus said, when you go into your prayer closet, close the door? This is what he has in mind. See, I wasn't raised with the same advantage that you've been raised with. Wasn't raised to believe that when I prayed, God will respond. I mean, why should he? Do you remember how astonished David was at this notion? He cries out to God, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Elsewhere, the psalmist tells us that God condescends to look upon the heavens well if it's beneath God for him to look upon the heavens how much more so for him to look upon me so I cover myself in my talus clutch onto his promises go to him in prayer with no reason to believe that he's even listening much less going to respond but he ought to respond to these now just a few months ago marked 52 years since I trusted Jesus as the Messiah and God saved can you imagine how excited I get even to this very moment, 
when I so much as think of those words in Hebrews that tell me that because of everything that Jesus did for me on the cross of Calvary, I can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help and mercy in my time of need. I don't have to worry about whether or not he'll hear me when I pray. I know as any father longs to hear the voice of his son, my heavenly father longs to hear me coming to him in prayer and longs to give me every good and every perfect gift that he can. Well, the garment that is most desired for Passover is the kittle. It's a white linen robe, and it's typical of the garment that the high priest would wear as he served God there at the temple. Now, it's a white robe. White represents righteousness. But we've already seen there is none righteous. No, not one. Fact of the matter is, the only righteous man that's ever lived is the God-man. Christ Jesus the Lord. But not only that, it's a garment of the high priest. And being white, a righteous high priest, if you will. Go back into the book of Hebrews, and you'll find a discussion there of our great high priest who came after the order of Melchizedek, and he's telling us of none other than Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Year after year after year, my father would gather his household around his dining room table don his kittle, cover his head either with a white yarmulke or more traditionally, a white miter, and he would lead us through the Passover in full representation of Yeshu HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, our righteous high priest, if you will. But never one time in all my father's life did he ever understand this. So, sundown, the 14th of the month of Nisan, we take our places around the table. Mother now is going to step out of character. Mother's going to light these candles. Now, in doing so, she's stepping out of character. You see, in Orthodox Judaism, women have no public role. If this were an Orthodox synagogue tonight, and we were just having a worship service like we did last night, you would never be seated as you are. Men and women never publicly pray, publicly worship together. Ladies, you're just too great a distraction. The rabbis want their minds on God, not on you. So you're removed along with your daughters. Usually there's a balcony, and you'll be taken to that balcony. But then there's some barrier separating you from the public worship. My sisters to this day can remember sitting in those balconies with this lattice work separating them from the public worship. Remember I told you three times a year the men and the boys came to temple, not the ladies, not their daughters. Yet when it comes time to lighting these candles, mother's the only one who can so we're going to have uh, a lady at each table go ahead and light the candles. It'd probably be just like at a wedding. They don't light them either. <laughs> So I can remember my mother would cover her head, she'd light the candles, make some passes with her hands over the candles, and then she'd cover her face. Because what she's going to do is somewhat shameful. There's a man at the table, she's going to openly pray. And she would say, Baruch atadonoi, 
Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher kedishana ve'mitzutav, v'tzivana lecha lechner, shel Pesach. All right, ladies. You weren't listening? I never get any takers. Blessed be, O God, King of the universe, who hath exalted us above all people and hath brought us to kindle the Passover light. Now with this, Mother has brought light to our feast, which otherwise would be in darkness. So think with me. Our God in his infinite ability could have brought the light of this world into this world of darkness through any means imaginable, couldn't he? Truth is, he chose a pretty unimaginable means, didn't he? He chose to bring that light into this world of darkness through a woman, through a virgin, just as a woman is the only one who can bring light to our feast, which otherwise would be in darkness. With that being done, Father takes the first cup of wine. It's known as a cup of sanctification. With this cup, he's simply going to pronounce his blessing on all the preparations made thus far for the feast. And he raised that cup and he prayed, Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Bere And then he drank. Father will now take the matzah, place them in the individual compartments of the matzatash. Yours is already situated that way, but you remember the matzah. It's flat. It has no um, leaven. It's striped from the cooking grid. It's pierced with holes. It's, uh, it's perfect in every way. It can't be chipped or broken. So Father now will reach in, and we have someone playing dad's role at each table. Go ahead and you reach in, and you find and remove not the first loaf, nor the third, but specifically the second loaf of matzah. We were doing this in one church, and I guess they were taking too long, and one lady yelled out, it's the one in the middle. So if that helps you. <laughs> so you remove that one, and then you see the lines where it's perforated? Break it along those lines, kind of as much in the middle as you can. And then lay that one piece down, and then there's a loose napkin on top of that stack. So take that and wrap that broken piece in that napkin. And then still, in the terminology of my people, you bury it for three of the four cups of wine. So you put it under the table cover. You can put it under a seat cushion. In some homes, Father will hide it somewhere in the house where the children don't know where he's hidden it. And then when it's time to redeem it back to the table, they send the children to search throughout the house for that broken piece of matzah. What do you think? Some maybe like the beginnings of something like, uh, you know, an Easter egg hunt. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun, folks. Some, everything's taken from something else. I don't know. It could be. Well, this is going to remain here, three of the four cups of wine. It's going to remain for the rest of the feast. It's going to be the last thing that we're going to eat. It's known as the afikomen, which is a Greek word that means the last thing that we're going to eat. Okay. I, I enjoy that too much. I don't know why, but I do. But anyway, with that being done, the youngest child now at the table, able to read, asks father four specific questions. The questions simply are, why is this night different from all other nights? And this night we eat only unleavened bread. Why is that? Why is this night different from all other nights? And this night we eat only bitter herbs. Why is that? Why is this night different from all other nights? And this night we recline in our chair at the table as no other night of the year. Why is that? And why is this night different from all other nights? And this night we dip twice 
There's a cup of salt water on each table. Why do we do that? Father will now take the Haggadah, the story of our deliverance, and he'll go through this Haggadah and spend a large portion of the evening answering these four questions in great, great detail. But the reason the youngest child at the table able to read will ask the questions is that that gave my father the opportunity, one by one as each of his children learned to read, at his own dining room table in the privacy of his own home to personally and individually indoctrinate his children and the tenets of his faith. Now we went to Hebrew school, we went to synagogue, but my father understood it was not the rabbi's responsibility nor was it the Hebrew school teacher's responsibility to raise his children. He knew that he and he alone stood accountable before God for his household. And fellas, in modern day Christianity, it's high time we grabbed hold of this. We have long come to the place where we are all too content to dump Junior off with anybody and everybody who will take him off of our hands. We drop him off at the Sunday school teacher, children's work, uh, church worker, the, the youth director, the Christian school teacher. Then we walk away just as happy as though we had a brain in our head. We've just deposited our most cherished possession, have we not? Into the hands of people who, for the most part, are total strangers, who now have control of our child's mind and in that the ability to destroy their lives. We haven't cared enough to sit down with these people for 10 minutes and find out what they're all about. If you think that that's oversold, when's the last time you've had your child Sunday school teacher at your dining room table? See, Dad, the problem is what we're not teaching, we're not studying. We're dumbing down. Junior now comes in with questions about what he presumes to be his dad's faith, and he can't get an answer. Instead, he gets an attitude. Hey, what are you coming to me for? Am I some kind of preacher? Have I been to Bible college? Don't we send you to Sunday school? Don't we pay all that money for you to be in that Christian school? Go bother those people. Leave me alone. Without even having heard the word, Junior's just learned hypocrisy. And that's why our kids, never mind the world's kids, our kids, you know what, we need to stop being so alarmed that sinners sin. Folks, that's what sinners do. We need to start being alarmed that our kids are twisting off. And they're doing it younger every year. And they're going out and chasing the sin that's in this sick world in which we live because in far too many cases, they're finding that to be more honorable than what's going on in their own home. And Dad, it's high time we stepped up and made some changes. You're saying, well, why are you dumping this on dad's shoulders? We're the head of the house, aren't we? Which has nothing to do with what just flashed across some of your eyes. Being head of the house has nothing to do with you coming home, flopping on that lazy boy and barking out orders. Change that channel. Quiet those kids down. Where's my iced tea? When's dinner going to be ready? Woman, don't you know I'm the head of this house? Let me tell you guys, by the time you give that little thing, <laughs> you ain't. You know what it means to be the head of the house? Listen, fellas, this is huge. But I believe our wife and our children ought to be able to expect this. I know our God does. Fellas, being head of the house means we walk with Jesus Christ to such a degree that we can lead our wife and our children in the things of God to such a level that they can stand before the bema seat judgment of Jesus Christ and give the best account possible. Now, that's a huge responsibility. And a far cry from how Ephesians 5 has been exploited all this time, and it's high time we stepped up and made these changes. See, my daddy, he didn't take this by chance. You're saying, yeah, right. Your daddy did such a grand job with you, then how'd you twist off become this Baptist preacher? That's well, a good question. I'm glad you brought it up. You see, in a setting like this, 
My daddy taught me God. He taught me Messiah. And he did it so thoroughly, so clearly, that March 9th, 1969, I'm seated at the Fundamental Baptist Temple in Detroit, Michigan, listening to Louis Hanner preach, preach Christ, and it hits me. Everything he's telling me about Jesus, everything my daddy ever taught me about Messiah. There is no conflict between those testaments, folks. From Genesis to Revelation, it is one plan of salvation to everyone that will believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. My daddy literally prepared me for the day that I'd get saved. And I'd roll over in his grave right now to know that, but that's still the truth. And dad, that's what we need to be doing in the lives of our kids, but on purpose, not by accident. Simple answer to these questions, we eat only unleavened bread because we're representing righteousness, purity, holiness. We eat only bitter herbs because we're recalling how bitter that time of slavery was. We recline in our chair at the table. We're no longer slaves. We can relax, we can celebrate, and we dip twice. There's that cup of salt water for that purpose. Do you remember when Jesus was in that upper room and he declared to those 12 men one would betray him? Have you ever noticed every one of those 12 men was frightened it might be him? There was a murmur that went up in that room. Is it me? Is it me? Peter's pushing on John. Ask him if it's me. So how did Jesus identify his betrayer? He that dips his sop with me is he that betrays me. And he reached down in Judas' hand, was with his in the ditch. While you're reading that passage, this is what was going on. Of course, my daddy would never tell me that story. So he would have us take a piece of parsley. And there's a cup of parsley on your table. You can pass that around and everybody take a sprig. I would recommend the smallest one you can find, but uh, unless you love parsley. Um, and he would tell us of that first Passover night. He would tell us how our ancestors fled Egypt very quickly. Pharaoh changed his mind, mounted his armies, pursued after them, and they came to the Red Sea. So let's just settle this one while I'm here, okay? It really was the Red Sea. I had a guy in Amarillo, Texas, after one of these, he was so proud of himself. He saunters up to me and he says, now wait a minute, I've studied this. I said, well, study it some more. He said, well, I got into it deep. I said, you're in over your head. He said, but the Red Sea would only be two inches of water at that time of the year. It'd be easier for them to get across. I said, nowhere in the Word of God does it tell us they march across in two inches of water, hip deep in mud. And more would be the miracle. Because that would mean that God drowned Pharaoh and his army and all those horses two inches of water. It takes more faith for me to believe that thing than it does to let God be God and take him at his word. They came to the Red Sea. God parted the waters of the Red Sea. They marched across on dry ground. Pharaoh and his army pursued them into the dry seabed. God closed the walls of water in on them, drawn him and his army and all the horses. So there's a cup of salt water on your table. You can begin to pass that around. What you do is you dip it one time for Israel, a second time for Pharaoh and his army. So it's once, twice, and then it's down the hatch with Pharaoh and his army. We won't be bothered with them anymore. So go ahead and dip it twice and then eat it. And if you do it fast, it's still pretty horrible. So... <laughs> So, Father will now take the Haggadah. I picked it up the other night like this, and I went, uh-oh. And like it really mattered, like anybody could have told the difference. 
you know. So uh, he'll take the Haggadah now, and he'll spend a large portion of the evening answering these four questions in great detail. He's going to tell us about the hardships. He's going to tell us how our ancestors were forced to build the cities for the pagan pharaohs, how they had to make their own brick and make their own mortar to do that. So we would eat a mixer called charoset. It's the only thing on that plate you're going to want to eat, I promise. Apples, honey, cinnamon, chopped up either pecans or walnuts. And, uh, but it kind of looks like the mortar holding the brick together. And by eating this, we enter into that experience with our ancestors a little bit and can better appreciate what they must have endured during this awful period of time. So there's a plate on your table with some broken pieces of matzah. And uh, so pass that plate around. You want to take two pieces because you're going to need a second piece here real quick. Then pass this around, and you use that matzah to dig that out of there and eat it like that, and it's a very traditional way of doing it. Just go ahead, once you've got it, go ahead. You can take as much of that as you want, because the next one you're not going to want any of. Father continues to the Haggadah and he tells us how that for 430 years our ancestors were enslaved, beaten, brutalized, dying at the hands of the taskmasters. Not even ruled over by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at this point, but by the pagan pharaohs. Finally, after 430 years of this, they cried out before God, pled for deliverance, and they wept before him. So we would eat some horseradish, literally intending to bring tears to our eyes that we should suffer a little bit with our ancestors who suffered so at the hands of these pagans. So you'll have to work to get it out of there, but use another piece of the matzah. Lucky you, we couldn't find a lot of this. So <laughs> just go ahead and, and um, pass that around. The reason there's a cup of water at your table in front of you is this. So just make sure it's not the salt water you're drinking. But again, by doing this, we, we enter into that experience with our ancestors during that awful period. I think also using the matzah with it softens the bite a little bit of the horseradish. So maybe that helps. All right, Father can go through the Haggadah from front to back, never really have to deal with this. This is supposed to be an egg. It's supposed to be roasted rock hard such that you can't eat it. Mine is a rock. First time I put this together, 1984, I wanted to be so authentic. 
Michelle came home one day and she said, what do you have in the oven? I said, an egg. So what are you doing? I said, I'm roasting it. She said, you can't do that. I said, the book says I need to roast an egg. She said, that can't be done. I said, button it went boom. <laughs> Boy, I hate it when she's right. So after she cleaned the second egg out of her oven, she brought this home one day and said, here, dummy, use this. And I've been using it ever since. But it's all right. You're not supposed to be able to eat it. It's supposed to be roasted so hard, it's absolutely inedible. It's inscribed on every Seder plate to be there, but it serves no purpose. It supports no type. There are those that say, well, it's there. Let's force some meaning onto it. There are probably as many meanings for this as there are rabbis. This is just a little bit of paganism, folks, that's found its way into one of our holiest feasts of the year, just as it's crept its way into our celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it has no place in either celebration. You remember I told you in the beginning, we don't celebrate Easter. Some of you, that's about all you've been thinking about since I made that statement. But the fact is, the word Easter appears one time in all the Word of God. It's in the book of Acts. It's a direct reference to the pagan Babylonian goddess of fertility, whose name is Ishtar. Easter is a derivation of the name Ishtar. Spring is the fertile season. The fertile symbol is the egg, the fertile animal, the bunny rabbit. Now, you want to keep my people confused about the gospel. You keep representing bunny rabbits laying eggs. They'll never catch on to that one. Personally, I could never figure out how you got a chocolate bunny rabbit to lay a caramel egg in the first place, but I was told it depended on what you fed the bunny rabbit. Uh, this is just paganism, plain and simple, folks. The night before first fruits, the priests descend the Temple Mount. They come to a field already selected for this purpose, bind some wreaths of barley, return to the temple. The next night, on the Feast of First Fruits, they return to this field, and in a very elaborate fashion, they harvest those wreaths of barley they bound the night before. They take that barley corn back to the temple. They roast it over an open fire on metal pans that are perforated so the fire can reach it. They take that roasted barley corn, grind it into a flour, run that flour through a succession of 13 different sieves, each one finer than the one before it. They're now left with an extremely fine flour. They take a portion of that flour, mix it with a portion of oil, make a lump, cast that lump on the altar. It rises up a sweet-smelling savor to God. Now, when God honors his first fruit offering, He's not honoring just the first fruit, but the entirety of the harvest. Now watch Jesus on resurrection morning, and he will not allow Mary to touch him. I can see him doing this. Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, which is in heaven. He could not allow Mary, having sinful hands, to touch him, and in that risk tainting the sacrifice before he'd had the opportunity to ascend to the Father, transgress that veil, enter that holy of holies, that throne room of God in heaven, and play the role of the high priest on our behalf and present the blood of his sacrifice upon that mercy seat. You know, it's one thing for a sacrifice to have been made. It's a whole nother issue for it to be acceptable before our holy and righteous God. Ask Cain how this works. A week later, he's challenging Thomas to touch him. Why is it okay now? Obviously, in that week that ensued, he had ascended to the Father. He had played the role of the high priest on our behalf. Now there's no risk of tainting the sacrifice. But what I need you to see is that when God the Father honored Jesus as the first fruit of the resurrection, he's not honoring just the first fruit, but the entirety of the resurrection. Folks, that's us. This is where our hope comes. If he's the first fruit, that means there's much more fruit that will follow. And you just can't get something as deeply spiritual as that by insisting I'm representing it in such pagan terms as this. But there it is. It's taken root in both celebrations. We seem to be powerless to get rid of it neither. How much better off would we have been 
had we done what God told us to do in both testaments. Drive the inhabitants of the land out from before you in the old. Come out from among them. Be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing in the new. But there it is. And unfortunately, it looks like there it'll stay. Father now comes to the place in the Haggadah where he tells us of that first Passover night. Our ancestors were instructed by God through Moses and Aaron. They were to take a very special lamb, the firstborn male of the flock, without spot or blemish. They were to sacrifice that lamb, apply the blood to the doorpost, to the lentil. They were then to go into that house, and if you've never seen it in these terms, under the blood. Because God was coming to Egypt this night. Now listen, there's no such thing as a death angel. Search your Bibles, you're just not going to find them. That's just Hollywood not able to deal with the realities of our living God. See, my generation back in the 60s discovered God is love. Now he won't let him be anything else. But he's first and foremost holy, holy, holy. And the demands of his holiness are so great that if he were not love to balance that out, there'd be no hope for any of us. But just because he's love, it does not negate his ability to exercise his hand of judgment, wrath, or correction. He does not need an agent to do this on his behalf. He's perfectly capable of doing this himself. Go back into the book of Exodus, chapter 12. The personal pronouns are all in the first person singular. This is God himself declaring what he personally intended to do this night. I will come to Egypt this night. When I see the blood, I will pass over. It's where we get the name of the feast. When I don't see the blood, I will enter in and take the firstborn son of every household. Flip over to the gospel record and watch Jesus now as he's approaching the river Jordan where John's baptizing. John lifts up his eyes, and I believe for the first time in his life, he sets sight on Jesus. And what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Every Jewish mind listening to this instantly flips back to Exodus and knows exactly what John has just declared about Jesus. Go a little deeper now in the gospel record and you find Jesus on the cross, bleeding and dying in your place and in mine, the just for the unjust. Caiaphas still not happy. You know, some people you're never going to please. They came to Pilate, you need to speed this thing up. It's a preparation of the feast. It's unlawful for any man to hang upon the tree during the feast. He couldn't have cared less about violating the law. You can't imagine how much law he violated just getting Jesus to the cross. What he was concerned about is depending on the constitution of the individual, you could last 36 to 72 hours on that cross before you die. There are some on record having been taken off the cross alive after that period of time. Caiaphas just wasn't willing to risk this. So he pressures Pilate, who knuckles under, you know, again, and he sends the soldiers to break the legs of the victims on the crosses. See, what they would do is they balance themselves on that nail on their feet, push up on that nail, pull up on the nails in their hands, take the weight off their lungs so they could breathe. They came to the thief on his one side, they broke his legs, he could no longer perform this exercise, he'd slump over and he'd suffocate and he'd die. They came to the thief on his other side, they broke his legs, and he suffocated and he died, but thank God in heaven. When they got to that middle cross where my Savior was, he who always is in control of the circumstances of his existence, who had boldly declared, no man takes my life, but I lay it down freely that I might take it again. They got to that middle cross and found Jesus had already commended his spirit to the Father, had hung his head, had given up the ghost, and he was already dead. And they did not break his legs. And I can't tell you how thrilled I am 
God includes this little tidbit in the biblical record. Because listen, friends, if ever there was a question that they may have broken Jesus' legs, the critics would have an argument we could not contend with. They would then want to tell us that in order for Jesus to be our Passover, to be our atonement, it was necessary that he fulfill the type of the sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament, which means he had to bleed and die, not suffocate and die. And if there's any question that they may have broken his legs, they'd say, see, he failed, and we'd have no Savior. And they'd be right. But thank God in heaven, just as the prophets declared, not a bone in his body was broken. Now, we need to represent that lamb of God that was slain for our deliverance. In Orthodox homes, we don't even eat lamb at Passover. We don't have the temple, we can't sacrifice, so we don't have the lamb. We still have to represent it. And of all portions of that lamb of God to use, we use this. A shank bone of a lamb. A leg bone. And specifically, it must be an unbroken shank bone of a lamb. What do you suppose this is all about? I mean, what clearer representation of Yeshu HaMashiach could you hope for? And there it is on every Passover table, year after year after year. Father now comes to the second cup of wine. This is known as the cup of judgment. Nobody drinks from this cup. I mean, heaven forbid any should, right? Instead, in a very solemn fashion, Father will go before each of us around the table. One by one, he'd stand before us, take our plate, and begin to recite the ten plagues. With every plague he calls out, he drops a drop of wine. Water to blood, a drop of wine. Frogs, a drop of wine. All the way to the death of the firstborn son, and with every plague, a drop of wine. And he continues then around the table until each of us had personally and individually experienced this. Now, I wonder if you're grasping this object lesson. You're a young child. You're seated at your father's table. Over and over and over again, you're listening to that judgment hand of God being exercised against those that would dare disobey him. While you're listening, you're looking at those drops of wine glistening off that plate in front of you, and it teaches you a little bit of what the Bible means when it tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, with that being done, we'd have been at the table now for like two hours. All we had to eat is this lovely stuff. Aren't you glad you came tonight? It's supposed to be a feast. We're supposed to enjoy ourselves. Mom and my sisters get up, go in the kitchen, bring out the feast, anything that's kosher, but again, no lamb. We're going to sit at the table now until midnight and celebrate this feast. And it's a lot like Thanksgiving. We're all home. We're all around the table. Uh, we're we're uh, celebrating God's blessings. We're showing him our gratitude. You know, in both these celebrations, we've chosen a pretty odd way to show gratitude, haven't we? Because in both of these, the way we've decided to show our gratitude to this God for all the wonderful things he's done, <laughs> we're going to eat ourselves under the table. I have no idea how that shows gratitude, but I'm for it, all right? Let's not bunk you with a good thing. So as we approach midnight and the third cup of wine, the children all see that we've eaten all that mom's prepared, and we are coming to that third cup. So the children rush to get to that place where father buried that broken loaf of matzah. You remember in the beginning, father reached in, whoops, and specifically found and removed not the first, not the third, but the second loaf of matzah. That matzah that was free from leaven, striped, pierced, perfect in every way. Broke it wrapped it in white linen, buried it for three of the four cups of wine. We're coming to the third cup. It is now being redeemed back to the table. The reason the children rush to get to it, the one that gets to it first gets to present it to Father. Father has to redeem it with silver. Father will unwrap this, bless it, break it. We'll all partake of it. He'll take the third cup, which 
my people refer to as the cup of redemption. He'll bless it, we'll all partake of it, and this is where Jesus institutes what we know to be the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, Jesus is in that upper room. He now has this broken loaf of matzah in his hand that's just been redeemed back to the table, and what does he declare? Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, not the first person, nor the third person, but eternally the second person of the Godhead. This is my body. Look, there's no leaven. He who knew no sin became sin for you and for me that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. This is my body. Look, it's striped. They took a scourge and they mercilessly beat my Savior. Isaiah 53 tells us he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him and by his stripes we are healed. And that has nothing to do with our physical healing whatsoever. That has everything to do with healing the breach that exists between you and God and God and all of mankind that began in the Garden of Eden when Adam fell to sin and continued until Jesus bore those stripes in his body and carried our sins away on the cross. It's pierced with holes. They took a crown of thorns and pierced his brow. They drove those spikes into his hands, his feet, drove that spear into his side. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came and they begged the body of Jesus from the cross. The Bible says to prepare him for burial after the manner of the Jews. Well, first of all, what was the urgency? Why did they have to beg his body from the cross? See, according to Roman law and culture, those victims on those crosses, those bodies belonged to Rome. Rome would crucify in the most trafficked spot they could find to get the most impact on the most people. So they would leave those bodies on those crosses. That those that came by, it was a warning to them, you better straighten up, this could be you. And they'd leave those bodies on those crosses till the scavenger birds and animals picked the bones clean. That wasn't going to happen to my Savior. So they were successful in securing his body from the cross and prepared him for burial, again, after the manner of the Jews. So what does that look like? This is a gesture of love and an act of worship. This is a sickening sight to even look upon much of this handle with your hands. Isaiah tells us his visage was marred more than any man, such that we could tell that he was neither man nor beast. And still in a very hands-on way, first thing they did, they cleansed his body of all of his wounds. See, that's a gesture of love. Then they anointed that body with about 100 pounds of ointment, wrapped him in white linen. That's an act of worship. Laid him in that borrowed tomb, but after three days and three nights, he rose again. And now Jesus has this broken loaf of matzah in his hand that's just been redeemed to the table, and he declares, take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, and he blessed it. Now the blessing's not recorded, but that's okay. My people still only have one blessing over bread. He raised that bread toward heaven and prayed, Baruch atadonoi, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lachemen haoritz. Blessed be, O God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. What is he saying? I mean, we all know Jesus is the bread of life. When did he, the bread of life, ever come forth from the earth? He's still in the upper room. He is yet to be betrayed. For those that are still skeptical, you know, Jesus was so politically incorrect, backed himself into a corner he couldn't get out of, wound up going to an early grave. You listen to Jesus in that upper room before he's ever been betrayed, praising the Father for his own resurrection, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. The Bible says in Lake, 
like manner also. Well, so dad, you can go ahead and take this out and unwrap it, but leave it in the napkin, and then you break it. And then pass that around, everybody take a piece, and we will come back to that. Don't eat it yet. So just hang on to it. So the Bible then says in like manner, also he took the cup, the cup of redemption, my people call it. He raised that cup and declared, this is the New Testament in my blood, drink ye all of it. And he blessed it. Again, the blessing's not recorded. It simply would have been, Baruch atadonoi, Eloheinu melech haolam, Blessed be, O God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth the fruit of the vine. So now what does he say? John chapter 15, Jesus looks at his disciples. I am the vine, you are the branches, my father is a husbandman. If you abide in me and I abide in you, the same shall bring forth fruit, much fruit, more fruit. Those 12 men, minus Judas, adding in the 13th, the apostle Paul, go out commissioned by Jesus himself to preach the gospel to every living creature throughout the known world. By Acts 17, they must have been successful. Now they're heralded as men who have turned the world upside down for the gospel of Christ. And I would suggest to you, more than 2,000 years after the fact, all the way up here at the North Pole, I took a picture of that, by the way, <laughs> all the way up here at the North, I'm still looking for Rudolph, but all the way up here at the North Pole, you and I that know Jesus as our personal Savior are literally fruit of those very branches. But it goes beyond that. This has to do with the wedding custom of Jesus' day. You see, in Jesus' day, when a young man looked to marry, he did not do what we do. Our custom is, when a young man looks to marry, he drains his parents' bank accounts, trying to convince some poor, unsuspecting gal, he's a pretty good guy, she'll spend the rest of her life with him. What she never understands until it's too late is that as soon as she says, I do, mom and dad cuts off that flow of money, she's stuck with just him. I know it's a mean custom, but it is highly effective. They didn't do that in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, when a young man looked to marry, he'd go to the place the women would gather, the marketplace, the river, the well. He'd pick out a bride, and he'd follow her home. Can't do that today. We have laws against this sort of thing. It's called stalking, and you'll probably wind up in jail. But things are different in Jesus' day. She lived with her daddy until she would marry. She'd go home to her father's house. The young man would come to the door. The father would come out. They would bargain. They would dick her. For the price that father required that young man to pay in order to purchase that daughter to be his bride. If they came to an agreement, the young man paid the contract price on the spot. He'd be taken into the house, and in most cases, for the first time in his life, he's going to be introduced to his bride. If she's in agreement with this wedding contract, she joins him in a cup of wine. Now they're betrothed. Wedding takes place at a later date. If she's not in agreement, she rejects this cup of wine. There's no betrothal, certainly the be no wedding, but the contract price has already been paid. Having joined him in that cup, now they're betrothed. He leaves her father's house, doesn't take her with him. He just instructs her to prepare herself for her wedding day, neither of these two knowing when that will be. He goes home to his father's house, and he begins to build a wedding chamber. He provides a wedding garment for his bride. Now, even though he's paid the contract price and is performing all this labor, it's not his decision as to when the wedding takes place. The house belongs to his father. He'll make the call. One day when everything meets with his father's approval, he'll tell his son to go get his bride. He'll leave his father's house in the middle of the night. He brings his best friend with him. And they can't just barge in here in the middle of the night unannounced. So his best friend blasts a trumpet. 
They steal his bride away in the middle of the night, take her home to the father's house. They go into that wedding chamber. The door closes. Outside that door will stand his best friend. In that wedding chamber, that bride gives an account of her life to her bridegroom. When that accounting is concluded, and believe me, to that bridegroom's satisfaction, he will then robe his bride in the wedding garment clean and white that he's provided for her. When that's been accomplished, he'll announce this to his best friend standing outside the door, who will turn and announce it to the father of the bridegroom, who then turns and announces it to all of his guests. When that announcement is made, this chamber door opens, out comes this grand processional. They'll take their seats at the father's table, and for seven days they'll celebrate the marriage feast. And you ought to be ahead of me. More than 2,000 years ago, the son, the living God, came to this old world and laid down the purchase price and bought a bride. He left her father's house, didn't take us with him. He just told us to watch and pray and warned us not to be ashamed at his appearing. He, in turn, went home to his father's house and began to build that wedding chamber. John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go now to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. They came to Jesus. When is this going to happen? When will you bring in the kingdom? What did he tell them? It's not for you to know. It's not for me to know. Only the Father in heaven knows. It's his house. He makes the call. One day, and friend, listen, I believe it could be tonight. The father's going to tell the son to go get his bride. He'll leave his father's house in the middle of the night. He brings his best friend with him, John the Baptist. Well, you can't prove me wrong, you know. Gabriel comes along to blast the trumpet. Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, he descends in the clouds in the sky. At the last trump, there's a mighty shout. The dead Christ rise first. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We will never be separated from him again. We'll be taken home to the Father's house. We'll go into that wedding chamber. The door will close. Outside that door will stand John the Baptist. In this wedding chamber, we, the bride of Christ, give an account of our life to our bridegroom. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment of Jesus Christ. When that accounting is concluded, and believe me, to our bridegroom's satisfaction, then our Savior, our bridegroom, robes us in the wedding garment clean and white that he's provided for us. We are not going to strut the streets of glory, folks, clad in our own righteousness. Not going to happen. Only in that of our bridegroom, our Savior, Jesus Christ. When that's been accomplished, he'll announce it to John. John chapter 3. Get past verse 16. Have you ever noticed there's a few other verses in that chapter? Deep in the chapter, they came to John wanting to know if he was Messiah. Guess what he tells them? He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend stands, longing to hear the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. I mean, in all manners that John could have responded to this, why is he using this scenario? Sure looks to me like he's plugging himself in right here, doesn't it? Now, we get to heaven, and this is not John. Take it up with him. He started it. He'll turn and announce it to the father of the bridegroom, God the Father, who will turn and announce it to his guests, the Old Testament saints of God. Saved the same way you and I are saved. The only difference, they were saved looking forward to the promise that had yet to come. You and I are saved looking back on the promise that already has come, but it's all in the blood, it's all in the name, it's all in the blood, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. When that announcement is made, this chamber door opens, out will come this grand processional, and I'm praying each and every one of you will be part of it. 
will take our seats at the Father's table, and for seven years, we'll celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. While on this earth, will ensue the worst period of man's history, the seven-year tribulation. Now, there's one last piece of this custom. At the end of those seven days, that young bridegroom removes himself from his father's table, takes his bride, and leaves his father's house. Guess what Revelation 19 tells us? At the end of those seven years, our bridegroom pushes away from the table. Mounts his white horse. We who are robed in garments clean and white, mount our horses behind him. We follow our bridegroom out of heaven to this earth where he binds Satan in chains in the bottomless pit, establishes his millennial kingdom, and you and I will rule and reign alongside of him a thousand years. Man, what a honeymoon, right? And the sign of it is a cup. Every bit as much as when you went through the waters of baptism, you identified in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so it is, friend, when you approach the Lord's table and you take this cup, you're identifying with your bridegroom who's gone away for a while, but you know of a certain he's coming, and he's coming soon to take you home to be with him. And we will never be separated from him again. Therefore, Jesus tells us, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you do show forth my death until I come. And in this gave us what we know to be the Lord's Supper. So go ahead and partake of the matzah and of the grape juice in front of you. Oh, I spilled the beans. I was going to let you decide if it was wine or grape juice. Actually, I don't know. The cups were filled before I got here. <laughs> now, I don't believe that he took the fourth cup. The fourth cup is a cup of praise. It has to do with the prophet coming, declaring Messiah had come. That had long since come and gone. Besides, remember, Jesus said, after taking the third cup, I'll not taste of the fruit of the vine of this cup again till I take it with you anew when I come into my Father's kingdom. So I don't believe he took the fourth cup. So at midnight now, they sang a hymn. They departed the upper room. They walked by the corner of the Temple Mount, crossed the brook Kidron, uh, into the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he'd be betrayed that night. But it's midnight now. All of us gets run to the front door. We throw the front door open fully expecting that prophet to be there to declare to us Messiah had come. You know, year after year after year, he never was there. Can you imagine our disappointment? We only expect this one night a year. Our expectations are at a fevered pitch, and again, it doesn't happen. We close the door a little saddened by this. We make our way back to the dining room. Father changes the mood from sad to glad just by declaring next year and in Jerusalem. Well, now we get happy again. Look. He didn't come last year, he didn't come this year. Surely he'll come next year. And hopefully we'll all be in Jerusalem when he does. So now we'd sing, and we'd sing joyfully. One of the songs we'd like to sing, Father would call the plagues out one by one, and he, he, he'd call out water to blood, and we'd sing, Die, die, ye new, die, die, ye new, die, die, ye new, die, ye die, ye die, ye die, die, ye new, die, die, ye new. Die, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, which means enough, enough, it should have been enough. Frogs, enough, enough, it should have been enough. All the way until we heard death of the firstborn son. Then very solemnly we'd say, Die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, enough, enough. 
it was enough. Listen, friends, just as the death of the firstborn son was enough to deliver my people from their bondage in Egypt, so it is the death of the firstborn son of Almighty God was, is, and forever will be enough to deliver all of mankind, to deliver you here now, tonight, from your bondage of sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Sure, the wages of sin is death, but, but, don't you love it when God butts in? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. Everything I've shown you tonight has shown you Jesus in every possible way you could hope to see him. All roots out of Exodus 12. How much more do I need to show you? How much deeper into the Hebrew Scriptures need I take you before you'll be convinced there never has been, never will be another plan in the mind of God for the forgiveness of your sin and the salvation of your soul and for that of all mankind that ever had or ever would live, save the shedding of that innocent blood of that spotless Lamb of God on Calvary Street. So what are you going to do with what you know tonight? Are you under the blood? Again, I said it last night. I'd say it again tonight. Make certain this is true of you, that Jesus truly is your Savior. No one but you and the Lord really knows the answer to that one. But the problem is, who are you fooling? Everybody you're trying to fool wind up in heaven, you'll wind up in hell. Come on, that's crazy. Stop playing church. This is the most critical issue in your eternal existence. This one you got to get right, folks. Make certain Jesus truly is your Savior. Knew that are saved. So what are you going to do with what you know? We've got to stop being content to just sit idly by week after week, month after month, year after year, never, ever telling anybody about a relationship with God because of Jesus. We've got to start telling them. And I'm sorry, it's not the pastor's responsibility to do it all by himself. Again, you're rubbing shoulders with people he'll never meet. Come on, folks. Paul told the church at Rome, I think it's Romans 13, even now are we closer than when we began. Speaking of the coming of the Lord. See, he thought it was imminent. He was not an amillennialist. <laughs> Even now are we closer than when we began. It is therefore high time that we wake out of sleep. That's what Paul told the church at Rome. How much more true is that for us in our generation? We, can, we look at the evening news, we read the headlines of the newspaper. It's like reading prophecy being fulfilled right before our eyes. We're so much closer today. The trumpet could sound tonight. Hear the words of Paul that the Holy Spirit told him to write. It is high time that we woke out of sleep. We have a job to do. John told us, I think it's in 1 John, it could be 2 John, that we're not to be ashamed at his appearing. How are we going to not be ashamed? When we reach out to embrace Jesus and find him looking at us like he looked at Peter on that awful morning. And we know that he knows 
that we never opened our mouth not one time, never raised our voice once to tell anybody. In all the decades that we'd been saved, we never told anybody about our Savior. How can that not cause shame? Come on, folks. We need, we need, we need to be obedient to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who said, ye shall be my witnesses. And interesting, the word he chose was martyrios, which means martyrs. It means we're to lay our life down for him in our service to him. What are you going to do with what you know tonight, you that are saved? Stop living like you're ashamed of Jesus. That's really what it boils down to. If he really was the most important thing in our life, he ought not be that tough to talk about. I have a six-month-old granddaughter. It's tough to shut me up about talking about her. And if you sit long enough next to me, you're, you're going to see her pictures. And it, if I showed them to you yesterday, you'll see the same ones today. <laughs> Why can't we be that way about Jesus? Shouldn't he be more important to us? Come on, folks. It's time that we started living what we claim to believe. Then what are we going to do with what we know where my people are concerned? They are desperately dependent on you for a gospel witness. Well, they get one. Go home and read Romans 9, 10, 11. You'll see God's passion for his people played out in the Apostle Paul. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, I'm such continual sorrow of heart that I would wish myself accursed from Christ if it would mean salvation for my kinsmen after the flesh, Israel. Chapter 10 and verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When he asks the questions in verse 14, he's still talking about Israel. How then shall they? Who else would this people group be except the one he's evidencing this intense burden for? It could just as easily have read, How then shall Israel? How then shall the Jews? How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard. How shall they hear except one preach? How shall he preach except he be sent? Verse 17, so then faith cometh by hearing, but hearing of the word of God. You know what all this means? Paul is saying, I'm so brokenhearted for my own people. If it were possible, I'd give up my own salvation, spend eternity in hell. If that mean all the Jews of the world be saved because of that. Now where's a passion like that come from if not from God? I constantly beg God that they would be saved. I know if they just ask, Jesus will save them. But how are they going to do that? They don't believe in him because they haven't heard. And how will they ever hear except people like you send people like me to them with a gospel witness? Chapter 11, verse 30 and 31, he clearly lays the responsibility on your shoulders. Remember, he's talking to non-Jewish believers at Rome when he says, by their disbelief, you obtain mercy. Salvation is of the Jews. It came through the Jews to you. You got saved, and you all be thrilled with that. But now he says it's time to reciprocate. So it is then by your mercy, they shall obtain mercy. Friend, it's come full circle. And it is the holy expectation of our righteous God that you who have the gospel see that his people have a hearing of the gospel. And he promises he'll bless you if you'll do it. Genesis 12, 3 is still valid. To this very day, I will bless them that bless thee. You can be no greater blessing to Abraham's seed than to provide them a gospel witness. And in that, the ability to be saved. I will curse them that curse thee. You can be no greater curse than to withhold that gospel witness 
and in that consign them to an eternity. And the devil's also blessing, curse from God. Which would you prefer? I really hope you're not mulling this over. This should be a no-brainer, folks. And the beauty of it, to be blessed in this arena, all you have to do is tell them. Get the, the gospel, get that witness into their ears. Give the Holy Spirit something to work with. What are you going to do with what you know tonight? Where your own eternal soul is concerned, where that of those in your circles of influence are concerned, and where my people are concerned. Let's just bow our heads, close our eyes. I'm not going to ask you to come forward tonight, but I am going to ask you to go before the throne of God tonight and ask God to show you how it is that he wants you to respond to what you've heard tonight. And when he shows you, do it. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Stop telling him no. Again, what's it going to be like the, if the rapture came tonight and you reach out to your Savior and he looks at you knowing the last thing you did on this earth was tell God, I don't care what you want, I'm not doing it. Trumpet sounds and then you're in that position. You don't want to be there, folks. You want to be saying like Isaiah, here am I, Lord. Send me. Use me. And you know what, Isaiah? God wasn't looking for somebody to go to a foreign field. He was looking for somebody to rise up and go to this people. Just like God is looking for someone to rise up and go to this people here at the North Pole and Fairbanks and tell them, what you know about Jesus. What are you going to do with that tonight? Will you, will you respond to the Holy Spirit of God? Father God, I love you. I thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleansed me of my sin over 52 years ago. Not only did he save me, but he keeps me for all of eternity. If there's one here tonight, Lord, without that same assurance, I'm pleading with you. Let this be the moment. Let your Holy Spirit win that battle. Draw them to the cross. Let them be gloriously saved once and for all. For those of us who are saved, break our heart for lost souls. Forgive us for how we've just been so careless with the witness that you left us here to be. Lord, I pray that you'll just break our hearts and send us out from this place with a boldness to be that witness, and that witness would come from a broken heart that it might reach their hearts. And Lord, give us a special passion for providing the same gospel witness to your chosen people. Bless us in these things. Help us, Father, each day of our life that we would get up and renew this before you. And when we walk out the door, ask you to lead us to somebody that day that we can be a witness to. And when you do, help us. Give us the encouragement. Help, give us the boldness. Give us the courage to speak up. Lord, I pray that you'll just bless us because of this. For it's in Jesus' name we do ask it.